week's episode, we're talking the Joker. I can't really be bothered for time codes in this one, so if you want to avoid spoilers, just go away and watch it. But remember to come back and listen, that's the most important bit. Hi, I'm Joseph and welcome to this week's episode. Today we're talking Joker. Now I realise people have just stopped talking about this, and you might be tired of hearing about it, but it's my podcast and I can do it whenever I want. But I just wanted to say, I get it, it's annoying, but let's just move on. You're either one of two minds about this film. You either hate it and you think it's overrated and it's trying too hard and it's just the worst thing ever or you love it and you think it can do no wrong. You can guess what you can guess my thoughts on it. But I was pleasantly surprised by this film and I'll be honest, I wasn't until I saw... I wasn't even excited for it until I saw the first trailer. I didn't think you'd be able to top Heath Ledger's Joker. I thought it'd be impossible and there'd be no point trying. But also, don't get us wrong, I'm not saying Heath Ledger's Joker's better because I'm not picking sides because that'll be ridiculous. I'm not here to start a war because I haven't really decided myself which I prefer. But even if I had, I wouldn't say I wouldn't tell you. But there's heaps of stuff I didn't notice until it was pointed out to us. Like the tiniest little details make this film, in my opinion. Easily one of the best films I've seen in the last five years, by the way. Joaquin Phoenix went very method with this one, and he only ate one apple a day. That's one apple per day to get in shape for this. He tried to make the character look skinny and sickly and just really creepy, and he definitely nailed it. He also improvised a lot, according to the trivia page on IMDb. He made some pretty big changes to scenes and even the character that got kept in. He made a lot of choices about the character that hadn't been seen in any other versions of it really. They wanted to do a really fresh take on it. A big part of the character obviously in any version is the laugh and the go-to stand is probably Mark Hamill's version. He did the animated series, he does the, the games, he does everything pretty much. Joaquin wanted to do something different that like, had never been seen before and it really worked out in my opinion. He said developing it was the hardest part of uh, the whole character. He really showed his acting chops in this though, doing the laugh especially, because um comes across as if it's physically hurting him and it, he's trying to like keep it in and it's just straining him. It's really good. They did a great job with the character writing in this as well. Um, it's constantly showing and not telling, which is something that uh, I think everyone strives for. People definitely look for it when they're reviewing stuff. It's believable that someone that's that beaten down could snap in the way he does, like in this film, like they, they really show you him getting whittled down. In the first 10 minutes, you already know a lot about the character, like small, just little things, like small bits of paint that were left on his hands and his face, meaning that he can't really disconnect from his alter ego of a clown, and that could be because it could be foreshadowing, it could be um, that he just doesn't want to go back to himself and he wants to stay as someone else. And just the opening, we can see that... Um, He's putting on a happy face physically with his hands, like forcing himself to smile in the mirror, and uh, it brings him pain, like physical pain, because you can see him crying and stuff. And to be fair, it would because the source of the message for put on a happy face is his abusive mom. So he does as he's told, but it just physically hurts him sometimes. But they write him as someone constantly looking for the funny side and things, just like his mom told him, like. Or what he thinks is funny anyway, usually he doesn't get it right, but like when he's been beaten to a bloody pulp and just left on the side of the road or the street or whatever and he still squirts the water out of his flower 
as he's like lying there, it shows that he's always trying to find the funny side of things, even when he's beaten down. They also, it also just shows that he's not a regular person. Like they didn't want you to, they didn't want to write a character in this that they would, you'd relate with. So someone that you might try and relate with him, but you just there's not a lot of stuff that a normal person who watches this would relate to him about. But a great example of showing and not telling is when you first find out about his condition. When, yeah, when he's on the bus with the lady and that kid. Because all he wants to do, is what he's been told again, is bring joy to people and he's making the kid, he's just trying to make the kid laugh. But as soon as he does this, the woman tells him to stop bothering that kid, you know, she makes him all uncomfortable. And then he, as he gets uncomfortable, he starts just laughing in her face, like proper uncontrollably. And then obviously she's really freaked out about this because getting on a bus is hard enough as it is. Like obviously she's horrified, so Ar like Arthur passes her a card that says, oh like... Tells her about his condition and like why he does it and stuff, and that feels like something that could definitely be issued to someone with a condition like this. Like it's very realistic, at least it seems to be anyway. And it really sets up his character for the rest of the film. But it tries really hard to show you the way he's treated, even by people who are supposed to have like his best interest at heart. Like a good example is the first meeting with him, and his therapist, where he mentions his career in stand-up comedy. And he knows he's already mentioned it to her, but she doesn't remember. She says, I don't think you did. And he goes, no, I did. Like he know, But he doesn't push it. Like He knows he did, but she doesn't, re she doesn't remember because she just doesn't care about him. And it shows you that just no one really, he's, he's not worth a second thought to anyone, really. It's just to get a lot of, get a lot of character depth in this, like the characters, they get shown a lot. So like, it's a lot of show and don't tell in this like I've already said but like especially when he's in the comedy club a bit later on he's um you can see him like what obviously he wants to be a comedian so he's trying to like work on his jokes and stuff and you can see him writing jokes down and that but he's at the comedy club and he's laughing just way too loud and it's like it's it's fake but he's it's because it's what he thinks is funny but he doesn't quite understand because he just laughs too loud and it's clear he doesn't know why he's laughing and it comes across as really forced. And he even there's even parts of it where he's laughing. Like he's not laughing, but the crowd is. And he's confused as to why the crowd's laughing. So that does a great job of showing just how awkward he is. And not just awkward, but he just doesn't understand social norms. So it's just it's another way of saying like it's just someone you wouldn't relate with because he's just not like you and me. But as the film progresses, we start to see Arthur as an unreliable narrator. And we begin to suspect that we can't really trust what's being shown to us sometimes. Not straight away, but once we get halfway through, we should really... You can see why he gets called that. Because we see the world through his eyes for most of the film. And some of the encounters that we get shown turn out to be a lot different later on. I'll talk about them more later on. But how Arthur perceives them is very different to what really happened. So like, we learn he likes to daydream. And about stuff that just wouldn't happen, like when he first imagines himself on the Murray Franklin show when he first meets his mum, we see that yeah, he likes to daydream and imagine himself in different scenarios. But we see him meet um, Zizi Beat's character, and they appear to go on really well, and you know, he, he, um, he doesn't freak her out, it seems like quite a normal interaction. And then they even agree to see each other again, and this is where we start to see Arthur straight to dance, so he does it when he's happy. And when he feels powerful and proud, like um, basically when things are going well for him. So like, I am going to jump around a little bit in this as well. So bear with us. Like it's, 
you you really have to have seen the film for to understand this. But I am jumping around from scene to scene, so just like when he gets his new gun from from his gadget at work, he starts dancing with it because he feels like all powerful, and he feels he's just he's got a bit more confidence because obviously he has the gun, and then he thinks he's a good dancer as well. So obviously like. You obviously you can like hear him say like I'm a good dancer and then he shoots the gun by mistake. There's a the scene where he's writing jokes and if he writes a joke he thinks particularly funny, he'll start to like move like like a little bit like a dance, really, like a little dance, but he'll only do it in private, you know, stuff like that. Like we see it's a character trait he likes to dance. It's probably described best the though the, the dancing thing is when he after he shoots the three people on the train. It's uh it's called the bathroom dance, like the scene. But it was originally supposed to be Arthur throwing his gun away, but uh Joaquin Phoenix said that Arthur wouldn't care about that and he just because he wouldn't throw the gun away he wouldn't think that much into it and he wouldn't really care about getting caught because the people he shot were bad in his opinion and they deserved it but the dance you actually see in the film instead of the, the that scene that we didn't get to see it wasn't even filmed it wasn't even cut but the the dance that we see it's like he improvised it on the spot but it makes a lot of sense for the character if you think about it because he obviously feels powerful for standing up for himself against the men so it just makes a lot of sense for the character to, to do that because he's got a bit more confidence now because he stood up for himself. But side note, uh, the score in this bit is my particular favourite in the film. Oh, I've been avoiding this. Here we go. Uh, Hilda Gunadorhor really outdid herself with this score because she wrote it. And I hope she's not listening because I definitely just butchered her name. But as the score as the score starts to kick up a bit, um, which is called The Bathroom Dance, by the way, if you want to check it out, I highly recommend it. This is when we really start to. This is when reality really starts to slip away from Arthur, and he starts to earn the title of unreliable narrator. So this is where things start to get a little bit subjective, as well, um, which is a, a word that'll come up a lot in this. But during the scene when Arthur gets, um, when he gets in the fridge, it could mean like a slew of things. Like literally, like I don't have enough time to go through them all, but it could either be his condition. Since um, certain like certain neuro neurological disorders like Arthur's, you crave confinement. Apparently, it's like a symptom. So it could be that, or it could be like it's a cocoon. Like it's like symbolism for like a cocoon. Like he gets in as Arthur, he comes out as the Joker, that kind of thing. Um. Or you know, or this one, which likes people like to people. Honestly, everyone likes to think that he's dead in this film. Everyone says it. Either he gets in, he dies, and the rest of the film is just totally in his head. Because obviously back then anyway, to be fair, I thought this in the pictures, but um, like myself, when he gets it, like those, I remember those fridges, you look like the lock, if like kids would get stuck in them and stuff, especially like when was this, whenever this was, like in the 60s or whatever. So like you'd get in and it would lock and like kids would get stuck in there. So I was like wondering how he got out. Maybe he didn't get out, maybe he's dead. But um, maybe he's dead and maybe it's all in his head, which to be fair, there is some evidence behind it. Like... All the clocks throughout the whole film are on 11-11 all the way through. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. But that's really, to be fair, it's, whoever, it's up to whoever's watching, which whatever what they think, it's all subjective. But the real breaking point for Arthur uh, comes when he finds out about his mum. When he finds about finds out about, uh, in inverted commas, our affair with Thomas Wayne. And he might have a brother, and it might be Bruce Wayne. So, but And he also finds out that not like his... Um, it's his mum's fault that he is where he is, like with his condition. Now, I just want to talk quickly about the the Bruce Wayne thing. There is some evidence to suggest that Bruce Wayne is his dad, because you see later on, like way later on, like 
Oh, wait, actually, no, is it? It might be... No, it's not that far away. But once he's at the bit in the film, like, he goes to the asylum and he steals the file from that guy. And, um... You see, like, you see a flashback of, um... Like, him and... him, Like, uh, obviously, his mum and Bruce Wayne when she was younger. And there is some evidence to suggest that he is the dad. Like, when he when he meets when he actually meets his uh um Arthur Thomas Wayne he knows he's adopted straight away and he the fact that he remembers his mom is a little bit weird just little certain, like little stuff like that like there is some evidence but to be fair I think they just added evidence to everything to keep you guessing because nobody knows what actually happened in this film it's just all up to the it's all up to the whoever's watching it really but after the after this encounter with um with a guy in the asylum and he finally reads his file and um, he finds all this out. Again, I apologise for my explanation. It's a bit all over. Um, I'm trying to keep it straight in my head. But this is where he starts to spiral. And the score's really good for this bit as well. Like, it really lets you know what's going on. Like, it shows that it's, it, it, it doesn't, it's not a common piece of music. Like, it's really, it's really, it like, uh, helps you resonate with the character. Like, you can tell I like the music in this as well, but, um, he starts to remember things, how they really went, like the encounters I spoke about before about him being an unreliable narrator. You can really start to tell, and he really starts to earn that title. But he really starts to spiral at this point, like, um, he really remembers how his encounters went with, uh, I keep going to call her Domino, because she's in Deadpool, like Zizzy Beats, I keep going to call her Domino. I'm just going to have to run with it, because I'm going to call her Domino sooner or later, so let's just get it out of the way. So, he starts to remember how things really went with Domino in their first encounter, so, in his head, that was a total win. You know, like, he did really well. He sport well like a normal person. That's not how it went. He really freaked her out because she just did the whole, um, like, she was trying to just did the, the handgun thing because she was just sick of her kid at the time and, like, she must have just been tired and that, whatever. He, he did it back and clearly really freaked her out. That might not even be how it went because, we, like I said, we see it through his eyes. We don't get to see how it actually happened. But he only, like, he only puts her on this pedestal because that's the only person in the first... She only shows him a little bit of just... Not even kindness, just like... What's the word? Just decency, not even kind. Like, just, just basically just decent to him. And he really puts her on a pedestal. So, we also find out that, like... They're in a relationship at this point, apparently. We also find out that the relationship was just all in his head. Like, he's been imagining the whole thing. Which, to be honest, totally caught me off guard. Then he goes on a bit of a tangent and he kills his mom. But we have no idea what's real and what's fake at this point. Like, this could all be fake, it could all be real. Nobody knows. But he then gets invited on his show. That that show. Uh, the What's it called? The Murray, no, the Murray Franklin show, sorry. And um, Which, by the way, Robert De Niro was great at him. I did not expect him to be in this. Um, but basically, as well, I forgot to mention... Uh, that bit as well where he slags him off. Like Murray Franklin, you can say on the show, like they they get they must have been sent the footage of Arthur doing the um the stand up comedy. But he gets the mic taken out of him on live T V by his like his idol, which didn't sit well with him. So at this point, he's become a bit of a symbol as well. Because the three people that he killed on the train, um, obviously got a lot of news called Bridget Thomas Wayne called everyone that associated with them clowns. So he became a symbol as a way people started dressing like him because that's how he was dressed when he killed the three men. It became like a, because obviously everything in the in the city at this point is bad. Like the 
there's that trash strike thing happening. There's like giant mutant rats and everyone's all beaten down and stuff and it's just not a good time. So it makes a lot of sense that a movement like this could start just completely by accident, which he did completely by accident. So he decides just to run with it and he decides to dye his hair green and really become the Joker. This is when he's really the Joker at this point. This is quite late in the film. He only dyes his hair green and it's a real, like, I wouldn't say realistic take but it's more realistic than the comics because obviously he falls into the acid and all that but none of that happens here he just happens to have his hair green for work that day when he killed the people so he just dyes it green and he then kills two of his pals from work and uh, that's very that bit's really dark and really brutal it also became a meme not long after with the lock then we get the new dancing scene like the the iconic one on the stairs and it really shows him becoming who he was supposed to be in his eyes. Like, you remember, like, remember this is someone who only dances in private or someone like his alter ego. Like, he only dances as the clown at work because it wasn't him. He only does it when he feels big and proud and powerful. So the stairs, like, were, were a slog at the beginning. Like, we saw him, like, climbing up the stairs and he was really taking ages and it was, like, the camera angle showed it was just a slog. But now he's going down them and he's just, he's dancing down them. He could not care in the world. He's, like, totally embraced Joker. And his, um, or this could just possibly be totally him losing his grip on reality totally and it's just none of this is real and he's dead or you know it's an all a dream but it's totally up to you whatever you believe but the bit of the film where this is the bit of the film that really started to pick up after he escapes his brush with the police that were chasing him for um, obviously for the death of the three people on the train and possibly for no, it's just for the three people on the train. Um, he goes straight to the Mary Franklin show because at this point he's just going with it. like He doesn't care anymore. And there's two ways to look at the interview scene. So either he knows he's distracted, he knows he's detached from reality at this point and it's all a dream or a fiction or whatever. And he totally, he's totally, or he's totally embraced the Joker and that's all that's left. Because during the interview, his ticks are gone, his insecurities are gone and even his condition, he's not... It's got. It's all got. Like he's all gone. He's perfectly confident and calm, which he hasn't been for any of the film. So at this point, it's almost like as well he's reverted back to a state before his condition. Because when he says, "I'm going to quote him here," is when he says, um, "Take out like little boys, and we won't desert and go with that bit." Take out little boys comes across as really childish because obviously the only time before his condition was when he was young, so we're like a little boy. So all of us also, like also, spoiler for the end here, I've spoiled a lot of it already, but if you don't want to know what happens at the end, pause it, and then go away and watch it, and then come back, remember to come back though. But then before he shoots Murray, no, I, when he shoots Murray, for, in his words, being awful, because he only kills bad people in this, uh, he makes no effort to run from the police, because he's done what he intended to do, and it's just a little bonus really, because he intended to kill himself, like we see this the scene where, he was planning on shooting himself. He's practicing to go on the show and he's planning on shooting himself. He thought that would get a laugh as well. Like it really good, does well to show you how damaged he is because he just he thought that would get a laugh from the audience. But he obviously like he's done what he intended to do. He's made his point and he's um he makes no intention to run. He's then rescued by his followers after he's been put in the police car that his followers rescue him. And then he has a little dance on the car because, like you know, like he said, he's never been happier at this point. Like obviously he's going to dance now. He has an audience for someone who can do it for, especially like followers. 
people who and that's all he wanted really for the whole thing is people to look at him and like and just recognize him so now that that's happening by so many people he's obviously going to be happy about it but and then he uh, then he does the joker smile uh, with the blood it's like he's birthing himself almost now that has people a bit conflicted again as most of the film does so did it happen or was it all in his head at this point? Nobody knows. Like, was the whole thing in his head from the very beginning? Is he alive? Is he dead? They're all valid questions. There's no stupid questions for this film because it's very subjective and no one knows what's going on, like I've already said. But the ending is also very... It's up to the viewer, really. So there's a few popular theories on what's, um, on what's going on. Especially with the line at the end where it's like, you wouldn't get it. And she's asking what he's laughing at. She says, he says you wouldn't get it. That bit. I will tell you some of my favourites though and uh, what I think. So the line at the end especially, I'm going to mainly focus on that line at the end because if not, this podcast is going to be on for way too long. But um, the line at the end, so basically, you wouldn't get it. So some people say that he's only saying it to get a drop of guard so he can escape because at the end, it maybe shows you escaping, it maybe doesn't. Maybe he just runs away for a bit. Maybe he just does it for a laugh because he thinks it's funny. So maybe he does it to get a drop of guard Others say that he dreamt it from the asylum. This is my favourite one. I think I hope this is what happened because it sounds really cool. He dreamt it all from the asylum and he's remembering his origins, how he created it, how he wants, not so how he created it, how he wants to remember it. It didn't happen like that because obviously the way um, Batman's created in this one is he kind of did it and he kind of didn't because he didn't personally do it but it's his actions that resulted in someone shooting Bruce Wayne's parents. So he technically created Batman in this. And also he might be his brother and he might not. We don't know. But my favourite one is that he had no way of knowing that that happened. So he had no way of knowing that he inspired someone to kill Bruce Wayne's parents. So I'm, I imagine that he's remembering this how he wants and how he thinks it's the funniest because like he's always looking for a laugh. He thinks that would be the funniest but he's already had... He already has like a long-standing relationship with Batman at this point. Like he's just remembering, it's all from him in the asylum, and none of it's really real. So he's all he's remembering how he wants, and he's already got a relationship with Batman. And they fought loads of times, but obviously, you know, that's just what I think. The ending's obviously up with the viewer. So yeah, that's just it's up to you, really. What do you think? Let us know. So to sum up, um, it's a bad day story. So how far can you push someone before they break? And this one shows that um, this one shows a man failed by everyone and everything until he breaks in a spectacular way, and I was very impressed with it, and it was very good, and I'd like to hear what you think about it. Obviously, if you've got criticism, you know that's welcome too. I'd like to hear it. But on that cheery note, that will wrap things up for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Showreel. If you enjoyed, please do consider subscribing on any good podcast supplier. I've been Joseph and this has been Shoreo. Cheers.